Hey, it's Imogen from SquarePeg. You're listening to the Founder Stories podcast, where we share the real story of what it's like to build a billion-dollar company, told by the founders themselves. Like most women on Earth, sometime in the next few weeks, I'll get my period. And like billions of those women, it will be painful. So painful, in fact, that as a teenager, I'd often stay home from school on the first or second day of my period. It's bloody annoying. Now, compared to some of my friends, I'd still put myself in the grim but manageable bucket of period pain. But it has always been bad enough that over the past 15 years, I have tried many, many ways to reduce the effects of having a period, from over-the-counter drug cocktails to heat packs to radical diet changes to birth control that took away periods completely, but I've never felt super comfy with plying my body with drugs, and so for the most part, took a grim and bear it approach. That was until I met Alice Williams. Alice is the founder of Ovira, a startup that builds small wearable devices that turn off period pain. At the time I met her, she had just joined Startmates Accelerator program and was looking for women to beta test the device. I signed up as a skeptical yet hopeful beta tester, and after trying the device during the period that followed, I sent her this message, and I quote, Alice, I just experienced my first drug-free period in 15 years. I am so in love with Ovira, end quote. Since then, Alice has been on a rip and sold her device to thousands of women worldwide. Meet Alice. Like a lot of women, I experience really bad period pain, like blacking out, vomiting, kind of the works. And it's so funny looking back now that I thought that was very normal. I guess in school we were taught that, you know, period pain is just a fact of life. But kind of looking back now, I'm like, what? We've got like driverless cars and rocket ships and the most amazing tech companies. But you're still telling me that for, you know, billions of women, we have to be, some of us, nearly completely incapacitated for one out of every four weeks. Like it's literally mind boggling. Alice saw there was a significant gap in the market when it came to conquering period pain, but no other companies were doing anything about it. And women around the world were left feeling embarrassed instead of liberated. Periods are such an integral part of being a woman. And from the moment you get your period, I know for me, my initial reaction was to bore my eyes out and cry. And I felt so much shame and it's disgusting and it's like this horrible thing. But if you actually think about it as humans, there's only one thing we know that we're supposed to do and that's to procreate. Um, And periods are actually like the vessel for us to be able to do this. And I guess the reason that we're all here. Um, So like, why aren't we celebrating these things? Like as women, we have the most amazing power to be able to create a human being. So when I first started, um, it was definitely just to solve my own need. So I loved doing kind of like N equals one experiments where I would try multiple different things to see how it would improve my pain. So whether that was like supplements or infrared sauna, Chinese medicine, like physio, chiropractor, all the things. And I guess one of the things that I came across was electrotherapy. And I was like, huh, instant relief that doesn't harm the body. Surely this is too good to be true, because if it was true, I'm sure myself, my friends and the other billions of women around the world would all be using this once a month. So after trying it and finding it did work, it was honestly like, what the? And yeah, I guess that was the thing that 
made me start working on it, like that initial reaction that I had. But I never thought that I would build like a massive empire or build a huge company. But I guess as you start to see the impact that you have on women, you almost feel like this responsibility of, you know, I'm really going to do this. Alice had stumbled across something called a TED device or a transcutaneous electrical nerve stimulation, which improved her pain dramatically. So it just essentially means that it's stimulating your nerves on contact. And what it's trying to do is overload those nerves and stop the pain signals from traveling to the brain. A really easy way for us to understand this is if as a kid, when you're running along and you fall over and you smash your leg, the first thing you're taught to do, like your mum will yell out, oh, rub it better. And so you'll start rubbing your hand quite ferociously on your leg. And really what you're doing is creating vibrations, which are overloading the nerves and stopping the pain signals from traveling to the brain so that's all we're doing with Avira is we're creating something that can sit on top um, of your lower belly and create those little vibrations which are stopping those pain signals from traveling to the brain. My initial thought was why hasn't someone thought of this before? Why is it not already being widely used to treat period pain? Alice's theory is that it's a reflection of women's health historically and how these issues are underfunded and under-researched. I guess from a scientific perspective, even from like a consumer brand perspective, like if I say soft drink, like Coca-Cola will come to mind. Or if uh, I say chocolate bar, you'll think of Mars bar. But if I say like period pain, nothing, like bloating, nothing, fatigue, acne, all these problems that women experience, there's just really no leaders out there or people that are even trying to introduce solutions to these problems. So I guess the majority of TENS devices that are on the market at the moment are made for other areas of pain. So they'll have multiple different electropads, huge LED screens, like all different programs. I guess a common use that people are quite familiar with them are for women giving birth in hospital. And those machines are super expensive, not only to buy, but like to rent. Physios use them for like muscle recovery. Um, And so we were like, well, how can we take this technology that already exists and turn it into something that is like super easy to use and made for period pain specifically? The initial reaction for women who tried Avira was overwhelmingly positive. As I said, I myself was one of the first women who trialed the TED device in its early stages, and I really was blown away by its effectiveness in reducing pain. Alice says it's these reactions from women who've tried the device and loved it, whose lives have been changed from using Ovira that really kept her going. Knowing that she had a solid product, she decided to sign up to Startmate, which my colleague James Tynan was running at the time. When I first came across Startmate, I remember looking at their website and it said something like, oh, Australia's most ambitious founders. And I remember being like, okay, that's totally not me. I'm not made for this. And I guess it ha- it was like mostly about like SaaS and technology. And I was like, okay, solo founder solving period pain with a hardware product. Don't really know if this is suitable, but, you know, put in an application. And I think from the very start, like I was one of the earliest companies in the cohort. So I think I was very much the underdog. And so no one, you know, as I said earlier, solo female, solo founder, like no, no experience in business marketing. Like, let's be real. I've never even had a real job, I guess, a nine to five. So I was lucky that quite a few of the mentors were, you know, very generous with their time. But I think just to be nice, not actually because 
you know, maybe some of them didn't think that I was going to go on to be doing what I am now. And I think it kind of got to the end of the program. Actually, I, I, I feel weird. Like I get funny about like talking about like progress or women's reactions and stuff. I always feel like it sounds like very cliche coming from me. Okay, here's something you need to know about Alice. She's humble and normal and hilarious and feels very strange talking herself or her product up, which I find is a very common thread among Aussies in general, but especially those who grew up in the country, like Alice. After I finished school, I went and started at university and did health sciences, which I really enjoyed. Like I've always found health super fascinating and just like so easy to absorb because I actually am interested in it, which I think was like quite different to the stuff that I learned at school. And so I did that for a little while, kind of got like itchy feet, ended up moving to the country and actually lived off the grid. <laughs> so like no electricity, was living in the Hakwa Valley, like on the border of a state forest, which was like an incredible life. There was like a heap of us young girls and we lived in this, you know, massive house. You know, we'd pick blueberries and blackberries for breakfast and make pie and it was yeah it was great but I just realized that that's probably not gonna be my life forever so I came back and I started doing psych at uni which I also really enjoyed but then transferred back into health sciences and then after doing that was like oh I want to do something more creative and ended up going into film production which is probably not the most direct career path and I guess what I loved about film um, is it's super fast paced so I literally started off as a runner so kind of does exactly what you would think you would do doing that like running around set making coffees for people and I worked my way up quite quickly to work as a production manager so working directly with the producer the producer would be working with the director and you'd get like a creative idea a shitload of money and then it would be like cool let's make this thing happen so it could be anywhere from like a few days to a few weeks to a few months and you would have to hire a team quite quickly you would have to problem solve I guess every single job was like very different so you were constantly learning um, and solving problems and I guess the skills that you would learn like on other jobs wouldn't necessarily transfer because you know you were all we could be you know shooting um, in the middle of the outback or over in WA like you know doing an underwater shoot or something so forth. With her background in film production and living off the grid she also spent a lot of time at her grandparents place selling thoroughbred horses. My grandparents, they lived in the country and as a kid we always used to go up there and I just loved being on the farm, like driving around the four-wheel bike, you know, chasing cows, riding horses, doing all the things. And so I guess I, like as a kid, I don't know, it was like I had just like great feelings, I guess, about being out in nature. I mean, we are human. It is something I guess we we all want to do or should do. And when I was younger and finished school, I would keep going up to visit them. And so I guess I made kind of like quite a few friends in the country. And yeah, it just kind of like gradually happened. And we would, I made friends with quite a lot of people who worked with horses and in like that kind of space. And so we would take off the track thoroughbreds and retrain them and then sell them for a shitload of money. (laughs) And it was what we love doing as well so it was such a good life we were making like so much money we were doing what we loved I can't say living off the grid is the most incredible thing especially when it's like freezing cold and I'm not sure people won't be familiar with the Hakwa Valley but it's literally underneath Mount Buller so it can snow there lots of spiders lots of snakes kind of the works (laughs) what everyone pictures Australia to be but back to the present day 
Alice is in the Startmate program. She's had some experience building a business with horses, but she has this creeping sense of imposter syndrome. I hear this a lot with first-time founders, but rarely do they speak as candidly as Alice on this. And it was on the back of sharing how she was feeling that Alice had one of the tougher conversations of her life with my colleague, James. James Tynan actually sat me down during Startmate and it was towards the end of the program and he was pretty direct in his feedback, but I think I really needed it as a wake-up call. And he was like, Alice... You need to just cut the self-doubt. Um, like, you are amazing and what you're creating is honestly incredible. You need to go over to SF and look at the way the founders behave over there. As in, like, I'm the best thing in the world. <laughs> and he's like, maybe you'll never be that. But take take a bit of that because it's what you need to get you, like, to the next step. And it was funny after that talk. Obviously, it was pretty hard to take when he spoke about it. But afterwards, it was just like everything started falling into place. Investors just started throwing money at me. Customers just, yeah, just everything just took off. Talent wanted to work with me. Um, I think it was just like probably one of the most pinnacle moments in my journey. So, yeah, if you're an early stage founder, you need to go and talk to James Tynan because I think he's one of the most incredible people in the industry. (laughs) The thing about Alice during Startmate was that every week we'd meet up And she'd talk about some hairy problems she was tackling and she'd somehow, you know, say or imply, you know, James, I have no idea what I'm doing. But after a while, I noticed that the problems that she was struggling with each week changed. And so I started asking, you know, what what happened to that other problem that we were worried about? And invariably, the answer would be that Alice had absolutely crushed it and moved on to the next thing. Uh, I remember one, you know, specific instance where a mentor had come to me all concerned about Alice's ability to get regulatory approval for Ovira. But as I started to talk to her about it, it was clear, you know, she was taking all of these very detailed steps and was just completely all over it and actually knew a lot more than the mentor in question. Um, So what I realized eventually was that Alice's, you know, hyper humility stems from her obsession with the biggest, scariest problem facing a business. You know, that obsession you know, means she's constantly putting herself in the deep end and relearning how to swim. And that takes incredible courage and a bulletproof growth mindset. And I think those are Alice's superpowers. But there's one other thing that makes Alice special as a founder. I saw it on demo day when Christina Hobbs, the founder of Verve Super, went completely off script during her presentation to thank and celebrate Alice for her help and how she was helping women. And I realized then that Alice isn't just someone of incredible ability. She's also the avatar for a movement that's time has come. You know, women's pain has been ignored and trivialized for generations. And Alice has the strength and warmth and vision to bring together not just a product, but a community of people who can make change happen. And I feel very lucky that I've been able to be a part of her story. Alice's superpower is being super focused on the women she serves. Every founder I hear says this, but few are willing to work as hard as Alice to ensure the company she builds remains as in touch with her customers as she is. 
something I think that we're very strong on is remaining as lean as possible. And I actually think this is something founders, especially in Australia and overseas, do very badly is as soon as they get a large chunk of funding, they go and hire a shitload of people. But what you're doing as the founder, you're actually becoming a people manager. And I think your job, especially in the early stages, is you're the one who knows the most about your customer. You're the one who knows what type of product you need to build. Um, And it takes you away from those two things. So it takes you away from the customer. It takes you away from like finding product market fit. On top of that, the other thing that we focus on a lot is when you are super lean um, and have restrictions on like team, resources, money, all the things is the Pareto principle. The Pareto principle, named after economist Wilfredo Pareto, specifies that 80% of consequences come from 20% of the cause, asserting an unequal relationship between inputs and outputs. We see it all the time in venture, and I'm sure actually you have experienced this yourself too, but it really goes back to what Pareto observed, which was that 80% of the land in Italy was owned by 20% of the population, and much the same applied abroad. For the most part, the Pareto principle is an observation that things in life are not always balanced. I guess the way we use it, so we use Scrum, which probably isn't atypical, I guess, for a D2C consumer startup. We don't use it, I guess, in like the total Scrum structure, like what the book says. We've just taken the parts that seem to work well for us and thrown out the rest. And when we're planning the work as well, I guess we are super (laughs) cross-functional too. So for example, if our supply chain manager is like, oh, we're going to introduce same day shipping in X country, he'll make sure um, he's popping in cards into marketing and making sure they're like communicating that as well. I guess, what does this actually look like? So it took us 100 days to get to our first 1000 customers, but then only another 100 days to reach like 10,000 customers. And so you really do start to see that hockey stick take off by just like constantly cutting stuff. Because I think founders, at the start of their journey you're constantly saying yes to every opportunity but then very quickly you have to change over and start saying no to things whether that's like projects you know podcasts meetings with people all those things I think we are pretty lucky in the fact that our product does exactly what it's supposed to do it stops women's pain when they have their period and I think we're also naturally lucky in the fact that women haven't really come across a product like this before. So the word of mouth is very strong. They're like screaming from the rooftops. And I think something that's interesting is that not only women, you know, very strong at talking about Avira, but men are too. A lot of men who I meet and have come across us. And when I ask them, oh, how many people have you told about Avira? They're like, oh, I, every single woman I, I meet, whether it's my mom, sister, friends, I'm like, oh, you guys need to try this, this Avira device that I've heard of which is I think really interesting um the device is an outright purchase and then the sticky gels we call them which are the gels that sit between your stomach and the device are an ongoing purchase at the moment we um only sell them outright but we'll be looking to introduce subscription in the future I think the thing that keeps women like super connected to Avira isn't necessarily coming back to make that purchase but we have a very much like a buzzing online community where not only does the Avira product address the pain, but we really try and address that emotional pain and isolation that comes from experiencing a problem that no one's ever talked about before. So if you, like anyone can jump in, it's called Avira's Inner Circle on Facebook um, and you can join and it's hyper engaged women talking about all the problems, I guess the shitty women's problems that we experience. 
Alice finished up her talk with us with advice on how fellow startup founders and entrepreneurs can successfully land fundraising for their venture. And it doesn't include doing things perfectly. I know we've made so many mistakes, like thousands and thousands of mistakes. We lost $3 million worth of stock recently off a ship. <laughs> like it's actually the first time we've ever shipped goods because we were selling so fast. We've only been able to air freight. And I was like, oh, cool. Well, now we can ship some. Let's put a decent chunk on and get them over to the US. And what do you know? It's actually like one of the big- biggest container losses in history that our stock happened to be on. And so we lost three million dollars worth and I think that's the one thing that I probably did wrong early on which sounds counterintuitive was not making enough mistakes I think when you're a solo founder and you've raised a shitload of capital from one of Australia's top VCs you're very much in the spotlight everyone's watching you and you're trying to run as fast as you can and it can be very daunting to be not making progress. And so you don't want to make mistakes because you think it's going to stop your progress. Whereas you actually should be making as many mistakes as fast as possible and just really not give a shit what anyone thinks. I think like the number one thing is have a great product. (laughs) I think I see a lot of like great people not have a great product and just trying to hack the system on fundraising. And I'm just like, do not want to give them any advice because I'm like, even if you raise capital, you're going to have a terrible terrible time because they're so tied to the product and you know there's all these things like vanity metrics where anyone can jazz up their numbers and I guess metrics to make their you know business more romanced on where it is or where it's going and so forth so I think like that would be number one advice for fundraising is have a great product I think the second one would be like I hate the word investor pitch because as soon as you start pitching an investor I can guarantee it's probably going to be a no everyone knows this but like ask them for advice actually just get to know them as a person and form like a natural relationship like you would with a normal human don't look at them as anything else except just a human and try and form that relationship pitching is I guess very similar to like trying to make a sale and you can just see investors start to put their hackles up when that comes up I think the third thing would be is like really get to know the investor and they're going to be asking you a lot of questions but you want to make sure that for 50% of the time the investor is talking as well not just because investors love to talk about themselves also because you really want to be sussing out like if they're the right partner for you there are times I guess where where an investor is maybe like 60% um, across the line and you could probably get them over the other part but it's just not going to be a great relationship in the long term so you really want those people who like you can tell like the feeling is so different so I like didn't chase those other VCs and you can definitely feel the difference in an investor when they're interested versus when they're not when they're not interested they're going to be asking questions which you're going to be like which are going to be like quite negative and where versus an investor that's quite interested, they're going to be asking questions that are going to paint your business in a positive light. You look at a lot of the headlines in the industry and it's all about how much capital companies have raised and how many people they've hired, which is so not indicative of how successful that company is currently or how successful it's going to be in the future. Like nine out of 10 VC backed 
companies like are technically considered failures. And I think a lot of founders starting out think that to be successful, like they have to go and raise capital and they spend so much time mucking around with investors and trying to get advice. And it's like, just go build a great product and the rest will follow. Investors will throw money at you then. And like I got to, like we got to the point with Avira, whereas like we had a product ready to sell and it was, and we actually had started selling at that point. And then I took on capital. So yeah, I I think it's just, yeah. Oh man, like there should be a playbook for this, but I think, and understandably, I think a lot of the noise is coming from like VCs. And so I think that story of raising capital is like dripping down from them. And so where to for Avira from here? We actively sell to Australia, the US, Canada, and we're actually just about to launch in Europe next month. I think because that word of mouth is so strong, we have customers from all around the world, whether that's Nigeria to Mexico, not that like we're actively trying to go after them yet. But yeah, we've we've got tens of thousands of customers now. Our three focus areas for this year is definitely on growth, like so continuing to grow the way we have in the past, the customer experience. So we really want to look at like how can we supercharge the experience at every single touch point and make sure our customers are delighted within one minute, whether that's like when they're opening the packaging, whether that's they're reading, you know, the privacy policy page on our website. And then I think the final and one of the most important areas is product. So looking at the way we can improve our current hardware, but then also starting the process of having other products uh, in production. The future of Elvira and Alice Williams is looking very bright, so make sure you watch this space. If you're a woman with painful periods, or if you're a person that knows someone with them, you can find out more at ovira.com. A short reminder that if you haven't already signed up to All Signal, our weekly dispatch of tech news, global tech jobs, and long-form content, then you can do so at spc.vc. Last week's long-form article was written by my brilliant colleague Oli Amir from our Tel Aviv office on how you can nudge your team towards embedding data best practices. It was advice she developed from her time at Google, Unit 8200 and Riskified, where she worked with some of the world's most and least advanced data teams. I highly, highly recommend it if you're building a new company and you can find it by Googling Oli Amir and data, or by signing up to AllSignal at spc.vc. A big thank you to our new podcast producer, Sarah, who has been really thrown in at the deep end as we attempted to script and record this episode while our entire team was on our biannual offsite. We are really grateful that she's joined the team and we know she will make this podcast phenomenal. We'll see you in two weeks for another episode.